You're listening to 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host, Carl Fitzgerald, as we investigate the role of landlords, bankers and natural monopoly through the eyes of the commons. Our birthrights, our birthrights. Listeners, uh, I'm receiving more and more feedback from uh, you wanting to know about the role of public banking and what we can do to trigger that. A happy medium to that is uh, the growth of banking co-ops. And uh, we're lucky today to be joined by Ashley, who uh, wants to remain anonymous, being the banking industry, but uh, he's been involved in a credit co-op for uh, a long time. How long, Ashley, have you been working in the the co-op side of banking? Uh, Ten years now. Wow. And give us the overview of of why a co-op is a good uh, category of banking to be involved in. Yeah, sure. Essentially, in Australia, uh, the Banking Act identifies building societies, credit unions and banks all under the same heading of ADIs, which stands for Authorised Deposit Taking Institutions. And and you've got to realise that some banks are mutuals, that means they're owned by their members, and some banks are not, and that means they're owned by shareholders, where profits are divided up between the owners, as opposed to profits being divided up you know, amongst the, the customers. There are also some building societies that are listed on the stock exchange and some building societies that are not. The whole point of defining them as ADIs now is because building societies, credit unions are kind of an old-fashioned term now and they don't really have any, any meaning because whether you're a building society, credit union or a bank, you're still regulated by APRA, you're still regulated by ASIC, you still have the same rules, you still offer the same products and some are listed, some are not. So the differentiation now is whether your ADI is owned by shareholders or it's owned by customers. Right, and so how does that play out for depositors in your your co-op? Uh, what sort of yields do they receive on deposits and then how are profits actually distributed? So the end game is with a, with a bank or a, a shareholder-owned ADI, when they make a profit, you know, the difference between what they pay on deposits and, and, and get in on mortgages, the profits get distributed as dividends to the shareholders. But with the mutual or a co-op, the dividends, or the, we don't have dividends, we don't have to pay shareholders. So all the profits are kept in-house to invest in the business, you know, research and develop technology and, and pay staff, etc. You know, even community grants, whatever. But no profit is, is goes into anyone's pocket. It stays within the organisation and a customer is effectively uh, the owner of that profit and um, they just use it as retained earnings to you know keep a capital ratio in line with the government regulation so then they can you know provide these products and services but it also flows through to the fact that because we don't need to pay dividends we can offer higher deposit rates and lower mortgage rates because we don't need to make profit for the sake of profit we only need to make profit for the sake of you know, having enough capital and having enough money to, to pay for t- IT and technology and, and other spend. So generally, you should get a better offering, a better deal, better interest rates from a customer-owned financial institution. How does that play out in the choice.com.au rankings of banking institutions? Does your organisation have uh, a good standing in that sort of realm? And and how do the credit co-ops rack up compared to the, the big four banks? Yeah, definitely. There's um, always, always surveys of this nature. Um, Choice is one of, of many that do it. But we always find the customer-owned institutions by far outweigh 
in terms of um, customer satisfaction. Very high scores there, as opposed to the big banks. Um, they don't score quite as high. Uh, my organisation and others, there are many, it's not just mine, that score very well in, uh, in those kind of surveys. In fact, there are, if you go to the APRA website, there are currently 150 ADIs in Australia. Of those, some of them are you know, the major four banks, some of them are foreign banks that are allowed to operate in Australia. But 70 of those 150 registered ADIs are actually customer-owned organisations. So they make up a large number of them, but they just make up a tiny fraction of the actual business that's done because they're you know, a bit unknown, they don't have wide distributions, and they struggle to you know, expand naturally. It's interesting, they're nearly half the size of the banking industry, but as you say, their overall asset base and uh, uh, customer base is a lot smaller. But uh, uh, in terms of stability, you've been there for 10 years, you would have seen the global financial crisis come through. Uh, How did your organisation stand up uh, as uh, the credit wheels were grinding to a halt in 0708? So I was I just started um, with the organisation around the GFC time, so I did see through that, and they fared very well. And one of the reasons that, that is is because they generally have a bit more conservative credit standards, because it, it is hard to raise funding when you're smaller. You have to pay more to get funding. One of the one of the reasons you have to have better credit standards. So for that reason, the mortgages hold up. You know the arrears are lower. In fact, most customer-owned organisations have arrears around, you know, half of the industry average. So they fare very well. Another thing to consider is now that there's the government guarantee, which is $250,000 per entity, per institution, and that is across all ADIs. So it doesn't matter if you have $250,000 or up to $250,000, you can have your money with the smallest credit union in Australia or the largest bank and the government will guarantee those funds. That's a good sign for the small players, but in a way that sort of guarantees allowed the big banks to be a bit more, to take on greater risk in their knowledge that a bailout is awaiting them. Yeah, and that's a big problem. So there is an, an implicit guarantee that everyone assumes that the government will bail out the big banks. And that is a, a bit of a moral hazard because then they can do what they like and they know that, oh, well, it's fine, the government will bail, them out, bail us out. You know, they, they privatise the gains and socialise the losses. So that is a big problem, but, uh, you know, we're going to have to lobby the government to get that changed because that they do get a big, uh, like a credit rating uptick um, because there's an implied support by the government. So with the government guarantee specifically, I, I think it helps the smaller guys as well as the bigger guys, but yeah, the implied guarantees that they'll be bailed out is um, definitely in favour of the big guys. Because if a small guy was to struggle, the government probably wouldn't care because it's not systemically important. But they might get bought out by a big guy or something to save them. While we're on the topic of the size, I've just got a couple of stats here for, for you know to give you an example of the size difference between the big four banks and the, and the smaller guys. We, I mean, in Australia, our population is about you know, 0.3% of the entire globe, but our major banks are ranked like 43rd, 44th and 49th and 50-somethings in the world in size of banks. They're enormous. The, the largest customer-owned institution that I know about is about $10 billion, $10 billion in assets under management, whereas someone like CBA has $900 billion. Um, so that's about... 90 times the size and if you add them all together 
the major four banks have about um, $3,600 billion of assets under management. Whereas if you add up all the mutual banks, put them all together, they've got about $100 billion. So it's about 3%. So covered bonds post-GFC seems to be a new frontier where all of a sudden depositors who traditionally have been the first uh, port of call in terms of government protection are now taking a back seat to what's known as covered bonds. Can you explain that concept and how that's uh, influencing uh, the role of, of banking? Yeah, that's right. So covered bonds is a new instrument that's been introduced since the GFC. And essentially, the Banking Act has always protected depositors in Australia. They rank first. They rank above everyone else. If something goes wrong, depositors get their money first. But with covered bonds, covered bondholders now rank above depositors because they have a, um, you know, they're allowed to dip into the mortgages before the receivers come in and divide everything up. They have direct recourse to a pool of mortgages. But one advantage of being in Australia, the Australian regulators have limited the amount of covered bonds that institutions are allowed to issue. So while it is it is an issue, it is being looked at by the regulators. So it is limited. So they can't they can't dilute dilute them as much as they are in other countries. Another area that I'm interested in, of course, is the role of derivatives here in Australia. And the derivative market seems to be spluttering along. It hasn't really kicked up from what I've noticed here in Australia. Ashley, what's your perspective on the role of derivatives? Will they really take off in Australia post-GFC? First of all, derivatives can be used for, firstly, speculation or hedging. And if they're used for hedging, then that derivatives are a good thing. They're a good product. It means you, you, you reduce your risk, um, you're spreading it around, um, etc. And most, even customer-owned mutuals will, um, will do those kind of products. But when they're used for speculation, yeah, they're quite dangerous and, and they can be many, many times the size of a balance sheet of an organisation. But one positive thing that's come out of the GSC, the government's working on derivative reporting so where if you have a derivative contract with another entity, you must report the size, the scale, you know, what, it, what its underlying asset is. Um, and the idea of that is then the regulator can then look at the entire market, see who owes what, where, so they can predict if something goes wrong, they can know the scale and, you know, if they can absorb the losses, etc. So they are making steps to, to make that safer and make it difficult to, you know, have a risky derivative position. So I think that's a good thing um, post-GFC. You're on 3CR's Renegade Economist with your host Carl Fitzgerald and this week we're talking with one of the many undercover agents who often fires me emails. Ashley works in a banking co-op. He wants to remain uh, anonymous but uh, it's great to have these insights on what's happening in the world of banking and uh, the world of co-ops. So you mentioned earlier the smaller size of co-ops. How is the actual growth rate uh, building up as uh, month after month the Reserve Bank drops interest rates uh, trying to uh, push up this property bubble and, and the big four banks uh, continue to refuse to pass on those the, the interest rate cut in full. Uh, is uh, that benefiting your business? Uh, the, the co-op model of banking, is it growing uh, as people turn their backs on this rampant rent seeking we see in the banking sector? Um, I'd say probably not, um, and it's quite frustrating because you hear a lot of the public 
you know, not happy with the big banks. They're not passing on the big cuts. They're charging high fees, but in, but they don't realise that there are other options available to them. And the customer and banking sector um, should really be growing a lot because there's a lot of unhappy people with the big banks, and you can get a better deal with these guys. And when you talk about the RBA passing on rates in full and not in full, it's kind of irrelevant. It matters what is the rate overall. So if if one week the major bank passes the whole rate on, it's not necessarily you know a tick for them. Their rate at the end of that drop in rate still might be a lot higher than what the customer-owned banks are offering to start with. So, yeah, they're taking it both ways, really, but um, uh, that's a bit frustrating for you, yeah, that the growth of banking co-ops hasn't uh, really kicked in. I know there's a lot of talk about uh, things such as crowdfunding, there's microfinance, there's a whole pile of um, peer-to-peer banking-type options opening up, but uh, for traditional banking credit co-ops, uh, you're saying that's that the profile hasn't really risen alongside it, which, which is a little surprising surprising when you see that the growth in co-ops generally seems to be on the rise as people recognize that the corporate structure of short-term thinking to reward uh, you know a, a few shareholders uh, is really curtailing this long-term uh, focus that we need within primarily the banking sector but uh, also the the wider um, economic framework. The major banks are one of the most hated institutions in the country but they have 80% market share and that that's just hard to reconcile. Is it ever? Um, um, another another reason why the the smaller guys might struggle is uh, it, it's hard to keep up with the technology and the in the capex to keep up with the major banks. So the major banks might spend you know a hundred million dollars on their internet banking or their mobile banking. The small guys just don't have that money. But the reason they don't have that money is because they don't have the customers. They're not generating the revenue because the major banks are generating all the revenue. So the only way that they will get build up the capital to you know invest in the better products is if people you know give them a chance and and understand that they're not just a customer they're an owner you know you're helping each other out there's more and more talk that we need a public banking competitor to the big four banks um, such as uh, the commonwealth bank was uh, pre the 19 19- 60s, 70s type era, and um, what, what's your perspective on that? Would a public bank help, or do you think the credit co-op model would still be as effective? Well, I think it has merit. Um, I, I think at the moment, yeah, the big banks are kind of running away with it a bit, so it, it could definitely help to have a public bank. But if people voted with their feet, they could essentially solve the problem themselves in the current environment. If you want to sit back and wait for the government to fix it, you might be waiting a while. If you want it to fix it now, it can be fixed now. Hmm. Yeah, well, that's important. And uh, one of the biggest criticisms of the banking system is their ability to create credit out of thin air. Uh, How does that play out in the credit co-op world with lower deposits? I imagine that your influence on the uh, M3 money supply is a lot lower. Yeah, well, we still participate in fractional reserve banking, so we do still, I guess, create money out of thin air, as you say, on the balance sheet. You create a liability, you create an asset. So, yeah, we, we're still part of that, and uh, rightly or wrongly, I'm not sure if there's a way to get out of that.
Yeah, well, there's a lot of talk, isn't there, that uh, you know the U.S. Uh, global currency is is on the wane. Uh, the BRICS nations are trading oil and uh, resources using their own uh, currency realms now. So there is this notion of the end of the dollar hegemony. And now with Bitcoin growing, some are saying it could be the currency of the future. Where do you see the future of monetary reform lying? There are some aspects of Bitcoin that are good and some that are not so good. So I like the fact that it's not centrally controlled and you can't create more of it. And it's kind of, it's, it's, it's sorted out by a network of, of, of participants. But the problem is, yeah, if everyone's got Bitcoin, then the next guy can start up and he can start, you know, something else and something else. It's, it still doesn't have intrinsic value. I think that's a problem. Whereas if you might have um, some currency that's backed by assets, that might be a bit more, it might work a bit better. But yeah, I, I, I think that's a big issue and I think it'll be a big issue playing forward. The fact that, you know, governments issuing currency versus electronic currency versus the BRICS conglomerate or, you know, there'll be other things as well. My view is I think the most stable currency would be, you know, an asset-backed currency, backed by a pool of assets, whether that be property shares, precious metals. Uh, equities, bonds, you know, you name it, but it's, it's it's backed by something real. It can't be manipulated by central banks. It can't be, you know, just created out of thin air. It's, um, it, it's kind of tangible. And so how does that then in, influence the growth of the money supply, uh, having this tangible underpinning to the value of currency in circulation? You can't create or destroy the wealth then. It's just it's just converting real assets that already exist into something that can be used for transactions. So I think it would help with that, you know, the supply problem there where it grows and falls. Mm, and, and uh, yeah, I suppose one of my big problems with Bitcoin is that it's again part of this first come, first served uh, nature of, of thinking that, uh, you know, those guys who got in and mined the Bitcoin early bought up lots of cheap Bitcoins uh, and now uh, multi-millionaires depending on where the value of the, the coin is and so it's not really a um, root and branch change of economic philosophy it's just another medium for uh, for benefiting the, the, the first come first serve um, as a change agents. Yeah, I, I kind of I kind of understand the reason why they went about it like that way. Their problem was they need to find a way to distribute it to, to start off with, and I guess I couldn't think of a better way to do it. So they decided, okay, let's do mining. But once it gets to a certain amount, then there's no more Bitcoin created. There's there's that amount, and that's it forever. So yeah, the, initially those guys will get big windfall gains, but that wasn't the intention of it. That was just they had to figure out a way to distribute it to start it all off. Well, maybe there's a holding charge on large owners of Bitcoin. Perhaps uh, uh, that could be a way to do it. Okay, you're on 3CR's Renegade Economist. Uh, we're talking public banking. We're talking credit co-ops and um, their prevalence. Uh, uh, but actually, uh, up here in Townsville, where I'm this week, uh, there was a, a public uh, banking inquiry, or sort of um, a sister to this push for a royal commission into the banking industry, and uh, uh, Bob Catter. Uh, was was out in the press talking about the need for a public bank. Uh, the One Nation senators were talking about the grand theft that was going on. There was all sorts of pressure. And one of the, the underlying um, pressure points
points was the role of banks foreclosing on farmers. And uh, last week I had Ted Gortney on the show talking about the importance of land valuation. Well, uh, when it comes to foreclosures, the role of uh, land and property valuations is, has a very powerful impact. And so uh, how do you see that uh, uh, influencing the farming community in terms of uh, banks' willingness to, to value an asset at um, market or model uh, uh, levels? Firstly, I think it's very unfair when banks foreclose when payments are still being met just because the valuation comes in a lot lower than it initially was. Quite unfair, but I, I think the real problem is before the loan is written, um, what is the value of a farm? I think I think that people are paying far too much, and and it's not their fault. It's just it's the market's fault. I think that you know these farms are just far too expensive, and and when they take out these massive debts to buy the farms, it it, it's, it it makes it a very hard equation to uh, to reconcile. And so, what are some of the foundations that allow the market to overvalue properties? Oh, of course, it's the capitalised future incomes of the farm. It's uh, the fact that it's you can own the, the land in perpetuity and and instead of um, you know getting all your returns from working the land hard and being a good steward of the land and being a good efficient farmer, instead of earning money from that, you just earn money from the, the forever increasing values of the land. You know, you need things as you say, your land tax to, to bring it into into a proper valuation so you can actually earn a return on it. And so then the valuation would be based on uh, the capitalisation of the the actual productive nature of that site rather than some dream of being able to um, get rezoning for that land so that it could be worth 10 times what it um, is as a farm in terms of a uh, master planned uh, property development. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, 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 it makes me quite sad when you hear farmers working hard their whole life. You know, they don't make too much money, but then... They, they have to rely on selling their farm at the end of their career to, to finally get their profit. They should be earning the money as they work hard, not at the end of a speculative uh, land value appreciation. Our Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's um, made a few telling speeches talking about the social licence of the banking industry. What role do they play in terms of uh, li- lending out according to people's ability to pay? Have you seen many examples of where the banking industry lends out uh, perhaps a little bit too much money to uh, that farmer, uh, almost in the hope that uh, there will be drought and they can foreclose on them and and claim those assets? I'm probably not involved as much on that side of things, but yes, I do think that happens. There is strict credit legislation, but I think, yeah, it is broken quite regularly. Um, and that, I think that needs to be looked into, but I, I don't know much about that. Ashley, uh, what would be the best practices you'd like seeing put in place for a future banking system? Well, the first thing I would say to your listeners, go to the Customer-Owned Banking Association website. You can just Google COBA and have a look at the list of institutions there. There's many. There'll be one near where you live. There's many of them. They're good and give them a go. So I think that's the first thing. Their bank fees are lower? Well, well, that's the other thing. Sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. The point is shop around, find something that is a product that you need, a price you need, 
and service you need, you'll, you'll be able to find a better deal. Excellent. So that was the first thing. My, my other comment would be, don't focus on the government to bring in a Royal Commission. But we've already got ASIC, we've already got APRA, we've already got the Financial Ombudsman, and we are quite heavily regulated you know, compared to the world. But if you're not happy with the unfair fees, if you're not happy with the misleading conduct, shop with your feet, try someone else. The other thing I want to point out is um, you also got to beware of um, multi-brands because Westpac actually owns St George, Bank of Melbourne, Rams and Bank of South Australia. So you might think you're banking with a smaller bank, but they're actually owned by Westpac. The other example is Bankwest and Aussie Home Loans. They're both owned by CBA. Hmm. Okay, we've got to be economic detectives to keep on the trail here. And, and also, if, even if you find a building society, they might have shareholders. So you've got to find out that they're actually a mutual or are they, they have shareholders. Professor Michael Hudson is a big advocate of the, the French form of banking, uh, Saint-Simonian banking, where uh, they had a more of a, a focus on the industrial development of an economy. And so lending was pro- predominantly for small business. And they had a system where when the economy was doing well, they'd take a couple of extra basis points and, um, and pocket that. But then when the economy went was in a downturn, they would reduce their interest rates to try and help these businesses survive the downturn. And uh, within your uh, banking co-op, uh, how does um, the split play out between a small business and the now dominant mortgage industry, which uh, the major banks seem to you know, see 80% plus of their, their loan book is, is towards the mortgage industry and small business are basically frozen out of finance? Yes, that is an issue industry-wide and I would have to say that the customer-owned banks don't really help out with that aspect because they have such a low risk profile, they don't really go into business banking. So that's a problem that we don't really help with, unfortunately. But I take your point that it's, it's, very, it's, it's very sad that most of the lending goes into established houses rather than new construction, new business, you know, stuff that will get the economy going. Most lending is just blowing into existing assets which I think is quite, quite dangerous. So what about if you have a community land trust? Uh, so a lot of groups I'm meeting as I travel Australia who are itching to get this community-led housing up and running. But as always, access to credit is the challenge. If you've got a trust structure that owns the land, you've got uh, people with solid work histories there uh, wanting to lease that land, uh, is there much potential to attain credit from the credit co-op movement? Uh, to be honest, I think there would be very low chickens, unfortunately. Okay. And that's just simply because, um, you know, they have very, very low risk appetites and they're not as sophisticated, you know, they don't have, they don't have the money to, to, you know, to hire the lawyers to make sure it's done correctly. Um, which is a shame. I think I think that there has potential to be something that they could do in the future, but the reality is I don't think they're quite ready for that. Mm. Yeah, we've got the Canberra Public Sector Banking uh, Service, which is, or union it might be, which has uh, been uh, very useful, but we need more assistance uh, if we're to get this community-led housing model up and running. So, uh, yes, Ashley, uh, keep your ears to the ground for me on that front. Will do. 
recording this outro from the Daintree Rainforest this week. That was Ashley X, another undercover renegade economist out there, keeping an eye on some of the imperfections that have been built into our economic framework that supposedly deliver us the sort of freedom we all want. Do we believe that voting in a ballot box is enough to give us freedom? No. We need economic freedom. And uh, so much of this show talks about this uh, rentier ability to be able to charge prices above the cost of production. And uh, the banking industry is certainly a prominent example of that. And uh, it was very interesting to hear that uh, the banking co-op world is not growing at uh, uh, an exceptional level because uh, everyday people are not voting with their feet they are not moving to uh, uh, a banking system that, that saves money within the community and enables uh, good lending. Now, tomorrow night, if you're in Cairns, uh, you can visit the Tea House, t-house.org.au, I think. I might have a .au in the end. I'll be giving a, a, a talk there to probably a dozen people. But if you're in Melbourne... And you're curious about this whole story, you've got to go to our 125th annual Henry George commemorative dinner. Catherine Cashmore is giving the keynote presentation, our president. She's been in the press, she's on the front line selling properties, seeing what's happening in the marketplace. She's got a action-packed presentation uh, prepared, so please... Uh, Check out uh, prosper.org.au to find out the details to that interesting talk. All right, my name's Carl Fitzgerald. Thanks for tuning in to The Renegade Economist. Thanks for sharing it with your networks. I look forward to reporting in from Cairns next week.